If you have uh, your Bibles with you, I'd like to ask you to please uh, turn with me to our text tonight, which is Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. Again, that's Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And we've been in a sermon series here on the book of Revelation for the last number of months, so I figured it's appropriate to just stay there for Christmas. And as we'll see, this is actually sort of John's uh, retelling of the Christmas story anyway. So Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, and this is what the Apostle John writes. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child when he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness to a place that God had prepared for her to be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, people don't always like it when movies change things. Sometimes filmmakers do that, right? Maybe they're adapting a book into a movie or telling a biopic, someone's life story. And they might make some changes along the way. Maybe they tweak a scene here or rewrite some of the dialogue there or roll a couple of different characters into one. And this, by the way, is why people will often say, yeah, the movie was all right, but the book was better. Because they don't like when filmmakers make those kinds of changes. But sometimes those kinds of changes are necessary. In order to make the story work as a movie, sometimes you need to tweak it a little bit, look at it from a bit different perspective, and take some creative license with the story. Well, in the same way, St. John takes a bit of creative license here in our text tonight. You see, Revelation 12 is John's dramatic retelling of the Christmas story. Only like a movie adaptation, he's had to make a few changes along the way, tweak the story a bit and tell it a bit differently. Revelation 12 is St. John's version of Christmas. That's probably not the version that we're used to. For starters, gone are all the traditional cozy images that we associate with Christmas, things like the stable and the manger and a saintly Mary and dutiful Joseph watching over the peaceful newborn Jesus, a gently glowing star in the sky, the shepherds and the wise men from afar. And absent, too, are the ways that we like to celebrate Christmas these days, too, things like holly, the tree, the lights and decorations, the eggnog or cider, the gifts and stockings, the warm fire, and the sense of joy and contentment. Instead, there's a dragon, enormous and red. He's got seven heads, ten horns, and a tail that sweeps stars out of the sky. And Mary actually is there here in Revelation 12, but she's not the doting mother that we might remember from our children's storybook Bibles. just sort of wondering at the joy of her child and pondering things and treasuring them in her heart. Instead, she's in labor, 
crying out in pain, about to give birth, and this dragon is standing right in front of her, waiting for her child so that she, he can destroy him the moment that he's born. There's not too many Christmas carols that get written about John's version of Christmas here. And it makes sense why not, too. Because John's telling of the Christmas story isn't the warm, fuzzy version that we like to sing about on our neighbor's doorsteps or read after our traditional Christmas meal. Luke chapter 2 works a lot better for that. But that's because John isn't interested in telling that version of the Christmas story. And this is actually what sets uh, the Apostle John's writing apart um, from all the other writing in the New Testament, both here in Revelation as well as his gospel and his letters. Because while the other authors of Scripture often write about the facts, the details, the particulars about a certain event in the gospel story, John instead often chooses to focus on their significance. For instance, instead of writing about Jesus' miracles in his gospel, John instead calls them signs because John sees them as pointing to something deeper about who Jesus is. He actually structures his gospel differently too, organizing it around the seven I am statements that Jesus uh, says about who he is rather than large blocks of teaching like Matthew does or, or sort of a travelogue the way that Luke does. And this is why John doesn't include a birth story either in his writing, at least not until here in Revelation 12. John writes differently because while the other scripture writers give us information about Jesus, John instead wants to give us an encounter with Jesus. He wants to bring us face to face with him. He doesn't just want to show us what Jesus did or, or what he was like. Instead, he wants to show us who Jesus is. John's not interested just in writing history. He's interested in writing theology. And as such, he wants to point us past the events he's writing to so that we can see their ongoing meaning and significance for us as Christian believers today. This is why towards the end of his gospel, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John doesn't want to tell us a story. Instead, he wants to show us a Savior. And that's true for this strange retelling of the Christmas story that we find here in Revelation 12. So no, there's no little town of Bethlehem here in Revelation 12. No humble stable, no friendly beasts gathered around the baby Jesus in the manger. Instead, John gives us a distressed Mary in the throes of childbirth and Satan, the great dragon, with violence on his mind. And he does this because he wants us to see past our usual understanding of Christmas to what's really going on here. You see, for all its coziness and niceties, the Christmas story at its most basic is a shot across the bow. It's God's signal to Satan that his time is up and that God is instead reinvading his creation. Christmas, in a sense, is D-Day. And God is coming to liberate his world from the hostile forces that have taken it over. That's the truth behind all the merry brightness of Christmas. It's the beginning of the end for Satan, sin, and death. 
And so that's why Satan's here at Mary's feet in Revelation 12. Because he's hoping to preempt God's plan, eliminate Christ, and stop the whole thing before it even gets started. Because he knows what this is. He knows who this child is. He knows that this is the beginning of the end for him. He knows that if this happens, if this Savior comes, salvation comes with him. And Satan can't have that. This is the truth of Christmas. And this is what John wants us to see. Behind all the lights, the nativity sets, and the traditional movies and songs, John wants us to see Christmas for what it really is. The coming of a Savior who causes Satan himself to shudder. We lose that sometimes in the consumerism and commodification that surrounds Christmas these days. We get wrapped up in the decorating, the Amazon shopping, the cooking and cleaning, and at least this year, the Zooming and social distancing. But in the midst of the hubbub and the holiday festivities, John wants us to see the significance and meaning that undergirds the whole thing. Christ, our Savior, is born, and Satan shudders at that. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, there's a reason Satan pulls out all the stops to do away with Christ here in Revelation 12. There's a reason that he's desperate to cut the whole thing short. There's a reason that, like the Grinch, he tries to steal Christmas and make it no more. Because this Savior changes everything. He's a Savior whose birth alone marks the birth to come of a new, redeemed, restored creation. He's a Savior whose life here among us declares peace. God is with you. Most importantly, though, he's a Savior whose death, resurrection, and victory over sin declares an end to our rebellion against God and instead a welcome back into his family as God's people once more. That's the significance that John wants us to see in this retelling of the Christmas story. He wants us to see the significance of this Savior, the significance of God's salvation begun so long ago, and the significance of Christ's redemption. Come here to earth. Come here to us. No, it might not be the version of Christmas that we're used to, but it is the version of Christmas we need to remember. And it is indeed good news of great joy for all the people. It's good news of great joy for us. Merry Christmas. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for sending your Son. And that's what we celebrate tonight. The coming of a Savior coming of our Savior, the coming of a Savior that Satan fears, and the coming of a Savior who can redeem and restore not only us as your people, but your entire creation. Thank you for sending your Son, and we look forward to his coming again. And we pray this in his name. Amen.